Good afternoon. My name is Paul Sears, and I'm a solutions architect with AWS on the partner organization. I support big data partners. And uh, today I'm joined with Alex Fahn, um, who's the lead architect at Experian. And we're going to be um, basically listening or learning about how Experian leverages Amazon EC2, Amazon S3, Amazon EBS with Cloudera Hadoop and uh, for their big data analytics. Um, I'm also going to do a little bit of a talk around EBS itself and kind of give you a little preview on Hadoop. So let's go ahead and get started. There we go. So um, under big data analytics, we have about five general workload categories. And um, if you were using Amazon services, Amazon EMR, Redshift, Kinesis or DynamoDB, for example, you don't need to worry too much about managing your big data solutions in terms of your storage and your capacity as is all managed for you. But for today, we're going to be focusing more on Cloudera and doing Cloudera on EC2. So we'll learn about how to optimize your storage, choose the right instant types and the right uh, volume types for your storage for uh, Cloudera. So back in uh, um, when Hadoop was first came around, the idea was that we had a lot of expensive network storage and a very expensive direct attached storage either via SANs and a lot of expensive servers. So in order to do big data where storage was expensive, Hadoop was designed with um, a file system in mind that leveraged commodity hardware, uh, commodity disks. So it was very inexpensive. And um, we, they replicated the, the disks and servers multiple times to give you better durability, better availability of your services. Um, but when we have, when we look in the cloud, it actually all changes because um, with EBS being durable and persistent, we can take some advantages that we didn't have before. So we have basically network attached storage, but allows you to decouple your compute from the storage. Um, allows you to scale each component as, as needed for your big data solution and optimize your costs while you're doing it. Uh, we also offer uh, an instant store, which is a thermal storage for certain use cases as well. So uh, to, to remind you of some of the building blocks we have with our, server, our storage services, we have our object storage, which is Amazon S3, Amazon Glacier. This provides 11 nines of durability, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's basically around file objects. We also have Amazon EFS, which is our uh, highly scalable and available uh, elastic file, file service, which is basically NFS uh, that's being served for you, fully managed solution. And then we have block storage, which is the raw disks you would normally see uh, on a server, uh, and, and we're going to be focusing on that today with Amazon EBS. So um, we have uh, two kinds of block storage offerings. You'll get ephemeral or instant store with EC2, which is the actual storage that's attached to the physical hosts that your instance run on. And these come in either SDD or HDD offerings. Uh, we have um, EBS, SSD back volumes, and these come in GP2 and IO1 offerings. And then we have uh, EB, uh, EBS HDD back volumes, which come in ST1 and SC1 volumes. 
So Amazon EC2 instance store, as I mentioned earlier, is non-persistent, it's ephemeral. It's local to the host, uh, it's where your instance is running. So the data isn't persistent, and if you terminate your instance or there's an issue with the host, that access to that data is, is no longer available, so you lose that data. Um, the data is not replicated anywhere, so it's basically what you have on that insta host itself. There's no concept of snapshots, so if you want to copy data, you're doing all the operations manually. You can get into the store in either SSD or HDD uh, instance types. And so now what is EBS? EBS is our block storage as a service. Uh, it offers five nines of availability. And um, there's an API that allows you to create your volumes and then you can attach and detach your volumes to your EC2 instances. And we'll see how this flexibility can really be a, a, an advantage for how you design your uh, big data applications. Um, this is a network attached storage um, through uh, where you connect those volumes to your uh, instance. However, you're not getting a dedicated disk, you're getting a portion of our volumes create comprised of many, many disks that are shared. So, um, as I mentioned, the volumes persist independent EC2. You can detach and reattach as you need to. You can separate your compute from your storage. So if you're using uh, ephemeral storage, instance stores, you're very limited in how you can scale your storage. There's a finite capacity on those instance sizes. And if you want to add more storage, you need to add more instances. With EBS, um, you can actually just uh, scale appropriately. You can add more volumes and attach them to your instance as you need to. You can attach and detach between instances within an availability zone, so you actually can take an instance down or detach your volumes, shut an instance down, make a new one, and reattach your volumes. This allows you to play around, experiment, allows you to uh, right-size the instance for your needs. So if you need more compute, you can change your instance size and then reattach your volumes. And it's shown here basically how you just you reattach from one to another. And it really is that simple. So we have a lot of, as we have a lot of, uh, many offerings of, of uh, volumes, how do you really choose, make the right decision what you're gonna use? So in general, oh, my animation is gone. So in general, um, GP2 is uh, the volume that's our general purpose. It, work, uh, for, it works for most uh, use cases, it it's, uh, supports random I.O., it works well with sequential I.O., it's the general volume, so if you really don't care what volume you want to use, GP2 is a good choice. If you have a need for um, a dedicated, consistent latency and higher, op higher IOPS, then you can use I.O. 1, and this will give you a higher consistent latency um, and up to uh, a, lot, a lot higher IOPS. If you really need an extreme amount of IOPS, you can use I, I instances, I3, for example, which have NVMe SSDs, and you can get to three million IOPS. But again, that's gonna be ephemeral or uh, temporary storage. It won't be anything permanent. If you're looking at throughput um, and costs are our consideration, then you can use um, our HDD volumes, which will be like SC1 or ST1. SC1 is a little lower throughput than our ST1 volumes, and uh, so you can balance your costs and performance with that. And then we also have a, a an instance store, ephemeral type, with a D2 as well. 
So EBS also offers encryption, and this uh, is, um, it's, it's actually very simple to use. You just enable it when you're creating your volume. Uh, it's that simple to do. You can encrypt um, your, um, you can attach, you can actually attach both encrypted and decrypted volumes to any of your instances as you need. And there's no, no performance impact at all using encryption uh, for this. It, um, and when you make snapshots of these volumes, they're also encrypted as well. Oh, my animation, my animation is a little off here, sorry. Okay, so we also have uh, the concept of EBS optimized instances. And this is where, um, if you normally would use EBS on certain instances, the bandwidth to talk to the storage is also shared with the bandwidth to do everything else. So it's a shared bandwidth. In this example here, C32X large has 125 megabits of bandwidth that's shared between EBS and your other, um, your other services, like your other network services. S3, uh, other instances, the databases, and such. So when you have an optimized instance, um, for example, a, uh, you, you can actually dedicate, or in this case, you can enable EBS optimized, and it gives you a dedicated set of bandwidth for your storage uh, that is separate from the rest of your network. So you get, you get better performance, better throughput without sharing that bandwidth with other network services. So um, it's an EBS optimized is now enabled by default on most of our newer instance types, such as the C4 and C5 instance family. Um, and also, uh, when it's enabled by default, there's no additional cost. It's just, it is, you just get it. There are some instances where it's not enabled by default, but you can enable it, and there's a little bit extra cost for that, um, but you do get dedicated bandwidth in those situations. There are also some instance types that do not support it right now, such as a C38X large. And my animation again. Okay, so we're gonna get into a little bit of Hadoop here. Um, this is kind of giving you a background for what we're going to be learning with um, experience, uh, experience with big data analytics. And Hadoop is, is uses an HDFS file system that um, is very sequential I.O. based. It does read and write to sequential in 64 megabytes or larger blocks. It doesn't do any random I.O. in terms of, uh, terms of the actual file system itself. It replicates the data three times by default, so you have three copies of your data across um, your Hadoop cluster. Um, so there also, you can also layer different file systems and make them compatible with HDFS by using uh, an API calls. For example, with EMRFS, which is the file system we use with Amazon EMR, it uses an API call to translate or it builds a, a bridge between Amazon S3 API calls and Hadoop HDFS API calls. So we actually can run Amazon EMR on S3. So with um, Amazon S3, HDFS uh, might be a good choice to run on S3, and there's some advantages with that. For example, you can scale out horizontally um, without any data distribution. You can just keep growing your data and keep growing your clusters without having to do anything because the data is all available uh, automatically for you. There's no need to do any disaster recovery because Amazon S3 is extremely durable with 11 nines of durability. So you don't need to have um, multiple copies around. You still should have probably two, but you don't need to do snapshots or backups or those, those kind of things for a 
um, availability aspect. You may still want to do that for data integrity. And you also can uh, use transient clusters now if you're using S3. So you can actually have clusters that you run only when you want to do your, your uh, analysis or um, run your jobs. And then you can turn them off, and your data is still available in Amazon S3 for other app applications or consumers. But there are some disadvantages as well. Um, Amazon S3, it, does, it doesn't support immediate consistency, so you have some consistency issues. Uh, for example, if you do a rename operation on HDFS, you're renaming the actual data structure, the, the, the node name inside HDFS, and it, it happens in place. With Amazon S3, it's going to be a copy command. It's going to copy the data from one file to another to do the rename. So it's eventually consistent. Um, you can, there are some mechanisms in place to address this. Uh, the latest Apache uh, Hadoop previews and support of S3 and S3A, S3 Guard kind of address some of these consistency issues. Amazon EMRFS will use DynamoDB in the back end to do metadata, uh, keep track of metadata so they can keep track of consistency issues for you. Um, security has various amounts of support right now. It's getting better all the time. Um, and there may be some compatibility issues with some certain distributions or certain engines um, that you might be using. So when should you use HDFS on EBS? Um, really comes down to when you want really high IOPS and high performance. So EBS is going to be much more performant for your storage than using Amazon S3. If you have uh, long-running clusters, for example, if you're running a MapR distribution, you're running a MapRFS, and you have a global namespace, those clusters are always going to run. So in that, in, that, in that case, running on EBS makes a lot of sense. Um, if you're doing your own uh, distribution, like we're doing, discussing Cloudera here, or Hortonworks, or MapR, then you probably want to use HDFS on EBS. So if you're using HDS, HDFS on EBS, you can actually optimize your choice of storage depending on the nature of your cluster um, and uh, how you're handling your jobs and how you're processing things. So you have a choice of Amazon EC2 instance store, which is the ephemeral storage. Um, and a D2 instance can get about three gigabytes a second of throughput overall. But your, your actually your limitation is really more the network. Um, and compute than it is going to be the actual instance storage size. So uh, it's very common that you need to scale your compute higher to get the throughput. So in this case, Amazon EBS ST1 volumes are a really good choice for Hadoop clusters because of the sequential I.O. and the throughput uh, of five, up to 500 megabytes um, per second with burst and uh, the baseline of 40 megabytes is, works very well for Hadoop workloads. Um, recommending that you use at least two terabyte volume sizes to get the most out of your buckets um, and your, your burst performance. And also because Amazon EFS, I'm sorry, uh, EBS replicates uh, automatically within the availability zone, you can, you can reduce your replication factor in Hadoop from, two, from three to two, three is a default, and you can actually save some storage costs as well because you don't need to have the extra data around for that durability. Okay, so now we're going to be moving into experience story, and I'm going to turn it over to Alex, who's going to share his experiences. There you go. Thanks, Paul, for that uh, terrific uh, overview. Um, so I'm Alex Fon. I'm the architect for the Advanced Tech Group at Experian. Um, 
uh, I come to Experian from Cloudera, where I you know, deployed CDH on uh, Isilon, on VMware EXI, bare metal, AWS. Um, so to give you some context of what we're doing at Experian, you know, we, we're, we have a large legacy infrastructure, uh, DB2, uh, mainframe, lots of data, a mountain of data. And uh, what we've done is we've, we've built a analytical platform to sort of prove out the migration into the cloud. Um, that's the analytical sandbox that I'll be talking about. It's basically a hybrid cloud platform, and in its, in its long-term future, it'll be integrating batch and real-time data. Um, we've done this for about a year only, a uh, little over a year. Uh, uh, we have three CDH clusters, 800 terabytes of EBS ST1, uh, 1.1 petabytes of, of S3, and it's probably going to double in the next uh, less than a year. Um, and 70 terabytes of EBS GPT. Those numbers are actually uh, kind of in indicative of, of this entire talk of how we use storage. Um, so how did we manage to go into the cloud? Well, this is a, a diagram that shows a very rough uh, idea of the architecture, the data flow. Uh, the bottom box is our data centers, one of our data centers. Our customers go through a, a, a Citrix uh, uh, a cluster, and everything goes through a VPN. Um, we're replacing that eventually with Direct Connect uh, for performance and whatnot. And the data itself gets exported from mainframe, DB2, uh, depersonalized, and everything gets stored in S3 initially, and then processed and stored in EBS and back to S3. So that's the general data flow. Uh, we only use PCI DSS services. That's extremely important for our internal uh, security governance. Um, the ones in green are the ones that are very important to us. Uh, you can see EMR there. It's, it's also, um, we do a lot of processing with EMR um, because EMR has the uh, S3 file system which you know, avoids the uh, eventual consistency issue. Um, okay, so. What's S3? Um, what can I say about S3? It's, it's everywhere, right? Like you feel it like when you go to work, when you go to church, you know, when you pay your taxes. Remember that? <laughs> it would be great if Lawrence Fishburne talked about S3. Uh, so it's kind of like the matrix. It's really the backbone for the Ascend and for Experian. Um, you know, there's uh, 11 nines of durability, like Paul said. So it, it serves as a really good record of store. Um, and if you're using CDH 5, 10, and below, you're going to have problems with S3 if you're doing transactional processing because of the eventual consistency. You know, there's uh, third-party uh, systems like uh, Databricks' uh, DBIO, um, uh, S3 Guard, which com comes with, from Cloudera CDH 5.11+. Plus. Um, so those... Those can be used safely. Um, and EMR, of course, is S3 safe for transactional rights. Um, so the way we also use S3 is that you know, we, sh we share data across clusters and across AWS accounts. Uh, we, we use it as a configuration store for initializing our servers, um, for cloud formation, SSM, user data, and logs and backups. That's pretty much it. Since this is more like an EBS talk, I'll just uh, uh, leave it at that. Um, uh, 
What we can do, though, um, is also enable some S3A optimizations that are available in like more modern versions of, of uh, CDH. You know, the fast upload is is very important. Set that to true, defaults false. Uh, the maximum number of connections, uh, fifteen hundred, should be a minimum, really. But you can you can max it out from the total cluster cores. So by default, the fast upload buffer. Uh, is on disk, which is EBS, which is kind of slow. It's going back and forth in network. So do it in, as a set it as a memory array, um, and I set the multi-part uh, size to be equivalent to the DFS block size, which should be around 128 megabytes or 256 if you're like you know using Impala a lot. Um, and the total amount of buffer size is really uh, 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 a calculation of the multi-part size plus the number of active blocks that are transferring. Um, the block size for our S3 data is, I set the same, as the same as our HDFS block size. Um, and the S3 endpoint region is very good because all our traffic goes through an S3 endpoint for security. It doesn't leave the VPC. Um, and the threads max should be uh, set to the number of available cores that Yarn uh, can use for that particular node manager, that particular node worker. Um, so how do we plan for uh, high availability? So on a you know, classic bare metal or, or whatnot, you know, there are three components. Uh, one is sort of like the racks, like how you distribute the workers. There's different types of roles. You know, there's the master utility server role, uh, gateway role, worker role. Worker role contains you know, the Impala daemon, the node manager, um, uh, the data node, which is for the HDFS storage. Um, so we can simulate racks via AZs. So what I show here is that, you know, our VPC consists of, of five um, AZs, and we distribute the cluster uh, across two or more AZs. Um, we have a SAS cluster that we distribute the same way. We have Hue. Uh, instances that are specific for each client because Hue is kind of a you know a security hole. There's a lot of features that are exposed with Hue. Uh, so every every multi this is a multi-tenant cluster. Every client gets its own Hue database. Um, we have R Studio across multiple zones and um, a Tableau service as well. Uh, another major uh, uh, component of high availability for Cloudera for Hadoop in general is the metadata. You know, that's where Cloudera Manager keeps its data. That's where the Hive Metastory is. So your backing database really should be a cluster of some sort. Um, we use RDS. RDS is we deploy in a, a highly available production layout, um, you know, daily snapshots, whatnot. So with, the, with AZs, we have the ability to have rack awareness and placement groups. Um, so just to get into, you know, uh, you know, AZs and racks, just to, just to give you more info. You know, the default replication is three. A file is broken into blocks. You know, you see yellow, green, purple. Uh, the first block is written to a rack, whether that rack be a bare metal or an AZ. And the second and third blocks are written to another rack or AZ. And because, you know, EBS has five nines of availability, uh, remember, an EBS volume is, is not a hard drive. It's a service. Um, and if you go, if you recall from the Google study on hard drives, you know, 2% of all drives in the fail in the first year, 9% fail within three years. So this is much better. Um, so what we've done is to reduce costs, we, we've, 
we've lowered the default replication to two. And that's a 33% drop in uh, SD1 storage. Uh, so placement groups are also very important. Uh, they provide the lowest latency among nodes, highest network throughput. Um, they're essentially a cluster. You know, they, uh, the only issue is that you've got to sort of pre pre-plan your cluster because adding additional nodes within a placement group isn't always um, guaranteed. So what we do is we actually sort of like deploy a pool of worker nodes, more than we need, pretty much all configured, um, and the lowest possible, the, the, the least expensive instance type, which is an M4 um, uh, large. And when we need it, we bump it up to the, the, the size that we, we need. And I'll get into that in a bit. So some of these placement groups can be enabled for certain EC2 types here, the MCIR, XPF series. A smallest type is a large. Um, and really, they, they do best in 10 gigabit uh, network and higher. Um, so the second part of like deploying a highly available cluster, Hadoop cluster, is, of course, to distribute the services across the zones. So here we have uh, you know, two racks and two AZs, and each rack or each AZ contains a, a pretty much a exact copy of the other rack. Uh, you have two services. Everything is HA, HA um, uh, unless it's, it's Sentry. So it's CDH 5.13, which was just released about two, three weeks ago, uh, closed the single point of failure for Sentry and the Hive Metastore service. Um, there, now we can deploy every single service uh, in an HA manner. Um, things that uh, require memory uh, or name nodes, memories, uh, memory intensive service roles include name nodes, Hive Server 2, Uzi. Um, so in choosing your instance type, remember to reserve like memory for the system processes as well. Uh, that, that ensures a more stable deployment. Um, so EC2 instance, EC2 instance types uh, to, for a secure Hadoop. Um, in choosing the particular instance types, I go through four different parameters. Storage, uh, network, whether it's network optimizable, uh, the total memory, and the memory to vCore or core ratio. You know. Uh, so we stay away from actual like D2s because you know, everything is AES-256 encrypted. So EBS provides that out of the box. Uh, there's EBS optimized instances, and it's flexible, like Paul said, to add and remove drives. Uh, um, so EC2 types that are appropriate for the master utility server role uh, are often compute and memory types. You know. Uh, these include the M44XL, C4XR Larges, R42XLs, R44XLs. And you could see some of the specs that I use to consider what's appropriate. You know, the number of cores, the total memory, the throughput of each in EC2 type is very important because this isn't a limited, uh, I'm sorry, bandwidth that goes through an EC2, uh, there's only so much uh, the, the pipe is only so large. So some of these have different types of throughput. Um, and we also associate costs, of course. Uh, so if you recall, like a name node, for each block, 
that each HDFS block um, consumes about 300 bytes of data. There's uh, two components. There's a, a file pointer um, and uh, some other metadata for each block. And that's what the name node keeps in memory. So uh, we usually use like eight gigabytes of heap for that particular service. In Hive Server 2, now in my experience, Hive Server 2, uh, if you're not using G1GC, uh, you're using CMS likely, right? And CMS doesn't work well with heap sizes that are 14 gigs or higher. You just have these stop of the world uh, type of garbage collections. Uh, so we've actually converted um, all our, our, our Hive server instances to use uh, G1GC. Um, that enables us to use heap sizes that are 30, 40, 50 gigs. And Hive server 2, if you recall, is the proxy for queries. You know, all the SQL that goes through a Hive instance gets, gets pushed through Hive server 2. So you can imagine this like cluster where there are a lot of SaaS clients uh, making queries, a lot of, uh, that's, that could be a, quite a bottleneck. Um, uh, so what do I mean by memory, memory core ratio? Um, so let's, let's say for this instance, you know, we want to use an M410XL full, as, a, as a worker node versus an R48XL, right? So uh, you see the memory, they're comparable. Um, uh, the ratio for the number of uh, amount of memory to core, reserving two or, uh, cores for the system would be four gigabytes per core for the M410XL and you know, uh, 7.8 gigabytes per, per core for the R48XL. And um, in sort of configuring the Spark uh, Yarn executor um, uh, uh, parameters, uh, you, we can, you know, it's recommended that if you don't really understand your workload, you use three to four, I'm uh, sorry, three to five cores per executor. You know, that would amount to about 12, 16, and 20 gigabytes um, per executor. And that's actually too small for our type of workload, large, you know, big data type of workloads, like, you know, things like HDO, uh, uh, any sort of analysis machine learning requires, it's much better to use uh, fewer executors with much larger memory. So in R4-8XL, R4-4XL, R4-16XL, those memory to core ratios are, you know, are linear. Um, so, uh, in the R4 8XL, we have we can start off with you know four cores per executor and have an executor of like 31 gigs. That works really well to start off with. Um, so in choosing you know EC2 type instance types for worker um, uh, server roles, we we can pick between storage roles or memory types. You know, uh, storage roles are the D2s. Now here I just Really, the D2 8XLs, in our experience, are the only uh, storage-optimized uh, EC2 types that we would consider. It's the only one that has 10 gigabit Ethernet. Um, it has 48 terabytes of instance HDD, very fast HDD, uh, but it's ephemeral. Um, so it's not, those, those drives aren't encrypted. Now, if you're, you, you're using Cloudera Navigator uh, or NavEncrypt, um, you can use NavEncrypt to Lux encrypt every single one of these volumes. So that's, you know, 48 volumes that need to be Lux encrypted. And, and Cloudera Navigator, NavEncrypt, actually sort of automates that. There's a ZTab file under at C that, that handles it, handles the mounting and decryption of these, uh, these block devices when the, when the server roll, uh, I'm sorry, when the server re restarts. 
Um, but it's very complex to set up. It's very complex to manage. Um, uh, and for, in some ways, it's too dense because it's, it's ephemeral as well. So mistakes happen. Uh, you know, the instance could be stopped. There could be a hardware failure. So we would have to, um, so when, when this happens, all that data is lost. And then when it comes back on, there's a replication storm. The blocks have to be replicated across the cluster. So you have reduced performance. Um, so we, we tend to avoid that sort of uh, ephemeral um, storage. And we go with the R4, 8XL, 16XLs as the primary worker uh, instances for our production clusters. Uh, these are 10 gigabit, 20 gigabit ethernet um, respectively. Uh, they exceed throughput, uh, the instance throughput um, for the D2AXLs. EBS encryption out of the box, really seamless. This, this envelope encryption is great uh, with key rotation and whatnot. Um, and you have custom kernel options for the 8XLs and 16XLs as well. Uh, and I, like I said before, great memory to vCore ratio and very flexible uh, storage strategy. What do I mean by that? So as we grow this out, you know, we often need more compute than storage. So we may attach just two uh, ST1 volumes as HDFS, and then just later on attach two more. And I'll show you why we use those numbers in a second. Um, so if you're ever wondering how, like, uh, what resources are consumed by Cloudera Manager, um, you can go to the host tab and click resources, and you can see what Cloudera Manager thinks uh, the resources are being are, are needed for that particular server role. Uh, it really is a function of the uh, the service roles that you deployed on that particular um, uh, uh, EC2. Uh, so that's a good way to check things. Um, so the the talks really come down to really like R4 instance, uh, instances and EBS ST1 for workers. You know, um, so here. Um, I'm trying to match the volume burst and baseline throughout throughput with the instance type um, because only so much information can, can flow through an EC2. Uh, if you have, for instance, uh, two terabyte SD1s, you're going to get the full 500 megabytes of, of, per second of burst. Um, but only two of those drives will actually, two of those drives, active drives will consume like the entire throughput for that EC2. Um, and so really, the way we size our disks our dis, uh, is, is a function of both complexity and ease of maintenance, but also of capacity. You know, how often are we going to deploy a 50-node cluster where every worker you know, has only four terabytes of SD1 storage? Unlikely. So uh, instead of, like say, 20 two-terabyte drives, we will use four 10-terabyte drives for an R416XL or two for an R48XL. And, and I, I threw on the D28XL there for comparison. So you see the max throughput for each one. Uh, R416XLs are 20, gig, 20 gigabit ethernet. So that's uh, a function of the network. Everything is pretty much a function of network. Um, and having large, fewer large SD1 volumes has uh, a benefit for EBS affinity. You know, I, like I said, I, I do, I've worked with VMware EXI before, and it just came as a sort of a, a precognition that that would be a good idea. And the EBS team basically said, you know, fewer large drives, much better than, you know, 
it's also much better for maintenance, right? Uh, who wants to deploy, uh, you know, for a petabyte cluster, that would be, uh, what, 40, like 500 volumes? <laughs> so, uh, so like I said, with the R4 8XLs and 16XLs, we can do really, we can do some low-level tuning. You know, there's C states. Uh, C states are uh, an idle uh, power-saving feature for most co uh, uh, common, most, most current Intel kernels. Um, and for an R4 16XL, we have, you know, uh, five C states, uh, 0, 1, 3, 6, and 7. You can actually cap that on the sys CFSA to, to, to see what, you, to, to verify. But, and what I've shown there is that for uh, C state one, 0, there's like 0, of course, 0 microseconds of, of latency, 2 for C1, 10 for C3, 40 for C6. And C6 seems to be the... Um, the default uh, idle state, uh, and I'll show you how we can tune that. So, uh, for under Etsy boot grub uh, config, you can set Intel idle max C state to equal one. This means that this this core, will, the kernel will keep the core at C state one and no higher. Um, as you can see from the left screen, the default is C6. 95% of, of most of, of all the cores are on this idling system is in C state six. When you set that state, 95% will be stuck in C, uh, C state one, which is, and how does that pertain to performance or EBS performance? So in writing like a one gigabyte file to SD1, uh, we're using the same R416XL, same SD1 drive, complete system idle, like this is not a, a, a node that's being worked on. Um, but default, you can, uh, default C6 uh, state, it takes 2.3728 seconds, you know? And if we set that idle, it'll write it in 2.287 seconds, which is a p-value of 0 0.002, which is, you know, significant. So there is some performance improvement. Now, some of this stuff is very low level, and the reason why we do this is because, as an enterprise, we can't really use the AWS AMI. And that is something, you know, if you can get away with it, you, you, you should look into. A lot of this stuff um, is already baked into that AMI. So another thing we could do is, is set the read-ahead buffer. Now this read-ahead buffer, so uh, the read-ahead buffer allows us to write sequential workloads, have, have better disk performance and throughput on sequential workloads. It's very important that you verify that your workload is sequential and that you're writing large files because changing this from default will actually negatively impact your, your performance otherwise. Um, so the recommended uh, RAA buffer is one megabyte. So you would set you know, RAA to 2048 uh, KB and times, I'm sorry, 2048 bytes times uh, the 512 byte sector uh, equals one megabyte. So I've actually changed this to 8192 for um, our R416XLs. And it's something you can play with. Uh, and it's very good that you, when you make these changes, it's, you really should just test it. And it's very workload dependent. So um, that's very much an Experian uh, setting. Um, but in general, for sequential I.O., uh, a one megabyte re RA should be sufficient. Um, we also change it to deadline, the deadline I.O. schedule. Uh, by default, it's CFQ. 
And there's a lot of things you could do with CFQ. But you know, int intuition tells me deadline is better, mainly because it prioritizes reads over writes. Reads tend to block. Um, it batches I.O. Uh, and latency is important for us. Uh, so I use FIO uh, to benchmark EBS performance. Here's an example of a file file. It's very, uh, very easy to use. This, this writes a one gigabyte file. Um, and uh, there's, I use this to test uh, uh, some settings that I'll show you in a second. Um, so how does uh, four, a four, four 10 terabyte SD1 on a R460XL, how does it, how does it perform? Um, so if we set the file uh, job to run four, t four reads versus four writes, you, know, you can see the aggregate um, throughput for each one. Uh, the 1783 is actually very important because that, that shows you that it maxes out the, the, the EC2 throughput. Um, and, uh, but really, you know, often the workload is mixed. You get mixed reads and mixed writes. So you can set the file config to do that, where two disks are writing, two disks are reading, and you can see the throughput there. Um, it seems like, you know, the aggregate throughput is much higher, like you know, 700 times 1500. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, plus 1500 is like 20. But the entire workload takes longer to run by about a couple uh, hundred milliseconds. Um, that goes to show you that we actually never, you know, that's a really important point. We we don't we we don't exceed the EC2 throughput no matter what. Like I could put 10 uh, 10 terabyte. SD1s here on this particular EC2, and we wouldn't get more than 1,700 megabytes per second. Okay. So we also use a hybrid EBS layout. Now, this is very different than, say, bare metal, where in bare metal, we have one disk, and it holds HDFS, it holds yarn, local data, Hive local data, Impala local data. Um, so what I did here was we have a GP2 boot volume encrypted. We have a data volume. That's GP2, where we, you know, we add the Zookeeper data. Uh, we separate Zookeeper logs from Zookeeper data, so we're basically bifurcating that flow for max performance of Zookeeper. Uh, yarn local data is kept on the SSD GP2 volume, Hive local data as well, uh, and the Cloudera manager hosts and service data. Those used to be in a database, if you recall, but now they're just written to log files directly on disk. Uh, so those are uh, written. To, those are random read-write uh, workloads. So they they go well with ST1. Um, some of the other use cases we we have uh, for our SAS foundation server, we use i3 uh, i3 16xls. We with ephemeral storage. That's the recommended um, using ephemeral storage is recommended by SAS. Um, so we use LVM and Stripe those eight terabyte, eight two terabyte drives to make one 16 terabyte workspace, SAS workspace for ephemeral uh, SAS data. And SD1 drives for SAS data, for the, the persistent data. Um, okay. Uh, so, okay, so how does SD1 work with, um, like I said, SD1 is really should be matched. So you should use the uh, EBS uh, storage types that match your particular workload. Here, files, I show performance or throughput of certain file sizes on ST1. So you can use DD or you can use file 
and uh, they both give similar results. Um, so for writing one KB size uh, files, the bandwidth is like two to 10 megabytes per second, where you know, a Hadoop workload is you know, 64 megabytes or higher. Um, and once you hit around 16, you can realize the full potential of the SD1 drive. And there, we're exceeding the 400 megabytes per second because we're, we're basically using some of the burst rates. Um, so is my assumption uh, correct for like splitting or putting the yarn local data onto GP2? Well, if you look at the yarn local data files, um, on one particular node that I just picked out at random, you can see that, you know, so the yarn node manager dot locals dir is the parameter in Hadoop that specifies where yarn keeps its local data, non-HDFS data. And there are three directories in there, file cache, user cache, and the NM private one. So you can see the sizes, the size range of the files, and the number of files. So if the user cache contains you know, tens of thousands of small files. Um, so it does make sense to put uh, this type of data onto GP2 and not ST1. And the added benefit is actually if you're using HDFS encryption like us, uh, we can just Lux encrypt that entire GP2 200 gigabyte volume instead of the 10 terabyte ST volume because this data really should be encrypted as well. Um, and because if you were to Lux encrypt the SD1 volume, you're adding you know, Lux encryption over EBS encryption plus the HDF, HDFS encryption on itself. And that's kind of a, a low performing um, recipe. So, so here's an example of a script that I use to just GPT partition and align these large EBS drives. So this is an excerpt from a larger script. Uh, there's no warranty on it, so <laughs> use it as you may. Um, the important point here is that um, when you're deploying HDF, a cluster, you, know, you can specify the location of HDFS, Yarn, Impala. Um, just don't put them in under the same like, directory. Like put them under, usually it's under HDFS, and, and, and here the nomenclature is one for the first SD drive to four. And then we have the DFS folder for HDFS, yarn for yarn data, Impala. If you were to put that yarn Impala data in DFS, when you reboot the system, like, uh, first of all, you're gonna have to change the permissions in order for yarn to read that because it's owned by HDFS. And that's a, kind of a security violation. And then when you reboot the system, uh, it's gonna change back because the Cloudera manager agent keeps all that in sync. And you'll just all of a sudden have HDFS data, but not be able to run jobs and whatnot. Um, and of course, anything over two terabytes has to be GPT uh, partitioned. Uh, align it on the 2048 uh, uh, byte, okay? So uh, improperly, so these are virtual drives. Uh, if you're not aligning the, uh, the, 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 the volumes, then uh, you'll have lower disk performance, okay? And with this script, I just automatically detect and um, partition and set the FS tab uh, just automatically. This should be run as user data. This could be pulled as part of a cloud init script. Um, in fact, I actually configure everything, well, as much as I can by convention because it's just easier that way. Uh, what do I mean by that? For instance, we have one Etsy FS tab 
that governs all these instances, whether it's an RCO server or a worker node or a master node or a SaaS foundation server or gateway. And it's just the way I label it um, that you can sort of utilize. And we'll get into that a bit. Um, so putting it all together, I have a sort of a, it's non-scientific, there's no, uh, it was hard to get the data, but um, we have a, an old cluster that runs RHEL6, you know, there's no hybrid SD1 GPT layout, there's no kernel CCA tuning, uh, you still use a CMS uh, garbage collector, and we have a more modern uh, Red Hat 7, uh, so you need a 310 kernel or higher. Um, we use a hybrid SD1 GP2 uh, layout, we've got CCA tuning, we use G1GC, and, you know, even though, actually I left this up, but system B actually ha is a smaller instance type, but that's not really all that important because, like I said, R44XLs, 8XLs, 16XLs, they scale linearly. As long as you, when you run the jobs, you keep the number of executors the same, it should run about the same. Networking is a bit slower, though. Uh, system B actually runs two to three times faster, and garbage collecting occurs much less. Um, so... So I'm going to leave you with uh, just a simple, well, one of the major things that, that we have to do is to ex elastically expand the cluster. Now, this cluster is Kerberized. It's got TLS 1, 2. And um, if you are familiar with Cloudera Hadoop, you know, adding nodes in a TLS 1, 2 cluster where both the Cloudera manager and the agents are checking certs requires you to sort of disable uh, TLS 1, 2. That's not, that's not going to happen. We can't do that. Um, and uh, we can't reboot CM, because okay, then we'll cut out on monitoring. Uh, and in our environment, because we're still transitioning into the cloud, we don't use Route 53 or any of the directory services in AWS. So all these nodes, all this kerberization occurs via you know, AD clusters on-prem. Um, uh, so what we do is we pre-compool all the nodes, um, and we get them all set up so that they are kerberized and, um, uh, and joined and whatnot. Um, you pre-generate the SSL certs. So we're using a, 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 a sort of a private, it's, it's a private hybrid uh, cloud system. So uh, you can pre-generate the key stores and the certs for every single server, even if they don't exist, and then load up the Java key stores so that Cloudera Manager, when it, when it boots, will have all these uh, certs in memory. Uh, we use convention to name the certs. Uh, there's no specific like host name that's in any of these configs. Um, and we put the config file in S3. Hmm. It's part of our init process. So, so if you're familiar with Cloudera Hadoop, uh, there is an agent running and the agent uses a config file under Etsy uh, Cloudera SEM agent called config imi. And in it, in order to have a you know, TLS cluster, uh, there are these four parameters that need to be specified. One is the private server key, a public server cert, use TLS equals one. And because we're you know, security conscious, we don't generate server certs that are passwordless. So Cloudera Manager, Cloudera Agent, has the ability to use a command like cat to read the password for that particular server uh, key. And that key, it, that password file sits on our servers. It's root readable only. So basically, if you, you're on the server and you're root, you pretty much own the box. You know? So it's you know, change, 
pause expression is 400. So you can use this command, and because the agent runs as root, you can, you can cat the password in order to initialize the agent or start it. Um, and so what we do is we just uh, we use user data or CloudFormation to install the, da the daemons or agents RPM. And what this does, so the RPM for, from Cloudera actually overwrites that config igni instead of saving the new uh, config as a, uh, an RPM-new. Um, so that's kind of an issue. Uh, so what we do after that is we pull down the config igni from S3, and then we just restart the Cloudera SEM agent. And what that does is, is immediately the agent communicates with Cloudera Manager, and it's already become a managed box. And then what you can do is you can use the CM REST API or go directly to the GUI and apply a config role. Uh, a config role is just basically a, a set of services that you've you know, defined as the gateway, the worker, and whatnot. And that initializes the, the node. Um, and uh, so it works for us. It works really well. We were able to expand uh, a cluster from like 20 nodes to dozens and dozens uh, within 24 hours in a sort of like an enterprise environment. Like if we were able to do this with, uh, you know, AD, like AWS AD or um, uh, Route 53, it would be, you know, much better. Uh, uh, it would be faster. Um, but we have to work with what we have. So in summary, um, I think the take-home points are we really have to understand the workload and match the, the storage performance pricing. You know, uh, for HDFS, you know, had we used GP2, we'd have paid eighty thousand per month instead of thirty-six, based upon the numbers I showed in the beginning. Uh, had we not, had we used uh, all SD1s instead of ST, so S3, I didn't talk too much about it, but it is sort of a backbone. Uh, for a lot of our data, you know, we, so we keep a lot of the write once, read many time data in S3, and that saves us, you know, t extra 25,000 a month. Um, we use optimal EC2 types. Uh, we tune our AMI, um, or use, if you can, the AWS AMI. Um, we use S3 to share and distribute the data, and, um, if you keep up with CDH, you'll get the benefits of um, you know, the improvements, things like fast upload for S3, S3 Guard, which provides the DynamoDB back consistency uh, check for actually enabling transactional workloads on S3 via Cloudera. Uh, if, like I said, you need to be on CDH 5.11 and above for that. Um, and uh, thank you all for attending. I hope this was helpful. So if you would like to learn more about EBS, we have a number of EBS sessions this week, um, all different types. There are chalk talks and deep dives. So um, there's just a sample here, also in, uh, available in the app uh, to find the ones that may interest you on leveraging EBS. So with that, I would like to thank Alex and Experian for the time and sharing their story with us. Um, very interesting how they leverage uh, different types of EBS storage and how they built in their clusters and how they get the right performance and cost benefits out of that. So thank you, everybody. I uh, really appreciate your time and hope you enjoyed the session. <laughs>